0: Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. We are continuing our series through the book of Proverbs. Um... And Proverbs is one of the books, it's actually one of my favorite books, um, because we're moving moving beyond principles here, and we're getting to the point. We're getting to the practice of what does it look like to follow God. So we have the, the principle and the command to love our neighbor, but what does that look like? What does that look like in how we treat one another, on how we vote, on how we live? And Proverbs gives us the answer, gives us practical guidance on how to apply specifically the eternal commands of God. And so we're going to continue that series in Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 19 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Proverbs chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. If you do not have a Bible, just simply raise your hand, and one of our ushers will put one in your hand. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that is our... While you're turning, I'm the youngest of the one. I want to have a little, little confession time here. Some of you may or may not know that I'm the youngest of five kids. And so a lot of people are like, oh, man, you're the baby, you're spoiled. Like, that's true if you have three kids. After five, your parents don't care anymore, right? You're just kind of fending for yourself, being raised by your older brothers and sisters. Um, and so my sister, who's uh, about two years older than me, um, she, we used to do this thing called school, and she would line, she'd put me in on the floor with all her little baby dolls, and she would be a teacher. She would pretend to be a teacher, and I was one of her students, mainly because I didn't have a choice. She was bigger than me at the time. not true now, though, payback. Um, so she used to make me sit in her classroom and she would teach me and usually it was fun it was a good time but there was this one time where it got us in a little bit of trouble she she says she didn't do this on purpose I don't believe her she told me that the fastest car in the world was called a mobile home (laughs) now I'm like four five six nine whatever right so I'm I'm, I'm a child I'm um, and I hear, she's, and I believe, she had been, I've been sitting on her tutelage for years. She's been my teacher, you know, at home. So I have no reason to not believe her. So I go to school with this insider knowledge that I'm a man. I know what the fastest car in the world is now. The problem is, friends, kids are terrible, right? And so I tell these kids, I'm like, hey, man, the fastest car in the world is a mobile home. And kids look at me like, nope. You know, they, we didn't even know about McLarens and Bugattis and all these other. We thought the fastest car in the world was a Lamborghini, right? That was the fastest one. They're like, no, Lamborghinis are the fastest car in the world. I'm like, no. My sister told me that a mobile home is the fastest car in the world. Needless to say, I got kicked out of school. We are fighting. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm believing in this. I put everything staked on this is the thing. I'm fully persuaded that the fastest car in the world is a mobile home. Now, come to find out, that was not true. My heart was broken and all the fights and, and stuff that I got into defending my sister's honor were all in vain because I was fully persuaded of the wrong thing. Um, yet it kept me from being swayed. And so what does it have to do with Proverbs chapter 1 verses 8 through 19? Simply this. If you're taking notes and you're looking for a title for today's message, it would simply be fully persuaded. See, as a child, I was fully persuaded of the wrong thing, and yet I was able to stand because i believe fully persuaded. But Today's passage is a similar emphasis that God is calling us to be fully persuaded, but not of a lie, not of a childish prank, but fully persuaded of the truth about who he is. So, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. We're going to break this section up into three different parts. Um, The first couple of verses, we're going to see an exhortation or a command or an encouragement to obedience. Then verses 11 through 14, the writer is going to give us an example We're going to go from exhortation to an example, and then the last five verses, verses 15 through 19, we're going to see the ending. Not just the ending of the passage, but the ending of the person who chooses the wrong path. So what is this exhortation? Read with me verses 8 through 10 of Proverbs chapter 1. It says, listen, my son, to your father's instructions. Let me pause there for a second. Listen, my son, is an important phrase because it gives us the audience. Who are we talking to right now? We're talking to children those who are in the family. My son was also a title given for a mentor and a disciplee. So someone who's being discipled would often be called a son or a daughter. So we're talking about a a child or a follower at this point. So let me give an exception here. The book of Proverbs is not a toolkit on how to live a better life for everybody. It's a toolkit for how to follow the commands of God for his children. So if you're not a believer today, you might be tempted to take this as just good principles on how to live a better life, and I promise you it will not work out for you that way. These are written to children, but he will have something to say for those who aren't in just a moment. Listen, my son, to your father's instructions, and don't reject your mother's teachings, for they will be a garland of favor on your head and pendants around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. Verse 10 is the anchor verse for this passage today, because this is the point that the writer is trying to get across. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. Now, what do sinners entice us to do? Well, he's going to give us an example in verses 11 through 14, so let's see what what the caution is against. Don't be persuaded, verse 11, if they say, come with us, let's set an ambush and kill someone, let's attack some innocent person just for fun, let's swallow them alive like sheol whole, like those who go down to the pit. We'll find all kinds of valuable property and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us, and we will share in the loot. And some of you are like, well, that's none of my friends are getting me to do that. Uh, Well, you have better friends than me, right? Amen. For some of us, this is a, a metaphor. For others of us, this is our story, right? We got saved out of a hard situation and circumstance, and our friends are literally calling us to go rob, steal, and kill. Amen? That, that, that's somebody's testimony. But for many of us, it's not as extreme as that, but we're still enticed by our friends. And so some commentators see this as an example of being greedy, and this is a, an admonition against greed. I don't, I don't agree with that 100%. I don't think we're just talking about be aware of being greedy. I think what we're talking about is any enticement to sin. Some people rob because they're greedy. Some people rob because they're hungry. So we begin to see that sin isn't just going against the commands of God. Sin might be doing the thing, getting the things that God wants you to have your way. We get a bigger definition of sin here. Sometimes we pursue good things. We just take a shortcut to get there. And so don't hear just greed in this example, hear an enticement to take a shortcut to the thing that God wants you to have. But you're tired of waiting. And so how are we enticed to sin? Some of us, like I said, it might be more extreme. It might be, hey, let's, it's Friday night, it's Saturday night, drinks are half off. You ain't been out in a while, you've been stressed, why don't you just come hang out with us and we'll have a good time. Our heads know that we shouldn't go out there, but our heart kind of like, well, it has been a hard week and so we are enticed to sin. For some of us, it may be the terrible relationship advice that we get on our jobs. Let me give you a fun fact. Don't get relationship advice from unbelievers. Just don't, because marriage is a supernatural activity, and without the Spirit of God, you got to get real creative in order to make this thing work. So husbands who don't have the power of the Spirit will say—I remember I used to work at a, at a bank and, um I just recently uh, got engaged to, to Jenny, and of course, you know, you find out you get engaged, everybody's got advice for you. He's like, hey, man, let me sit down with you. Let me share what you what to do. I, got, I just think about some of the advice that I got, and it was terrible. It was well-meaning, but it was terrible. So things like, man, just give her what she wants. If she asks anything, the answer is yes, right? Just lie, basically. Lie and, de- and cheat and deceive, but as long as she don't find out, it's fine, Right? It's almost protecting her, right? You want to lie to her to protect her, right? You love her, right? And so it was an enticement to sin. I want a happy, healthy marriage, but that's taking a shortcut to get there. So once again, entice to do something good, but without the motives. Ladies, you might hear this. You know, your husband's not acting right. Here's what you do. You could pray for him. You could memorize some verses. You can confess God's Word for his life, or this will be faster— you can give him the silent treatment. Now, that probably don't work for long because you find out we like that, right? Like, you ain't talking? Cool, right? <laughs> so if that don't work, you got you to gotta ramp it up, right? So if the silent treatment don't work, how about this? How about just withhold sex for a while? Does stop have sex? See if he straightens out. Oh, y'all acting like we can't talk about nothing in here, right? I know God made sex, right? It's his. It's to be enjoyed by married folks. And so sometimes we get, this, um, we get this call to just do good things, like you want your husband to act right, then here's how you can manipulate him to do the things that you want. So we are enticed to sin, and we hear, we're surrounded by opportunities to take shortcuts every way to go along. And the writer is saying, don't be enticed to sin, don't be persuaded to go along with it. So then, why not? It seems to work at times. Why shouldn't we take these shortcuts? Verse 15 through 19 gives us the ending for all those who choose that path of sin. He goes back to what he's saying before. He says, my son, don't travel that road with them or set foot on their path because their feet run towards evil and they hurry to shed blood. It is useless to spread a net where any bird can see it. Let me me stop here for a second it's a weird phrase in verse 17 and 18. What he's saying is when you throw out a bird trap or you throw out a trap for any, any kind of animal, you don't just make the trap obvious. You hide it with good things. Food. You birds bird seed on the trap and it attracts the animals. So they're not attracted to the trap, they're attracted to the food. And just like sin never advertises its consequences, it always advertises its pleasure. Sin never advertises the consequences. It always advertises its pleasure. And we feel the consequences afterwards. Anyone ever been in a, a pattern of sin that you hate? You fall into that sin somehow way. you stumble into that sin, and immediately you feel terrible. Anyone ever felt that way before? Immediately you feel terrible. Immediately you know you did the wrong thing. Immediately you feel the conviction, and yet for some reason that wears off, doesn't it? It wears off, and a week, a day, a month later, we think sin is a good idea again. What's saying is that's a trap. That sin and the Satan is advertising the, the, the good and the feeling that you get for that split second, but it's hiding the trap underneath it. Verse 18, but they, it is useless to spread a net. Verse 17, it is useless to spread a net where any bird can see it, but they set an ambush to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. Such are the paths of all who make profit dishonestly. It takes the lives of those who receive it. And here he lands the plane and gets particular here sin kills sin kills either accuse you right away or accuse you in time but sin always bears the fruit of death and so the the, the <laughs> Solomon here, the the writer here, is trying to get us to avoid that pit of death by not being enticed by sin because you're not going to see death. You're going to see the good feeling. You're going to see the shortcut. You're going to see all the ways you can cheat to get ahead because everyone's doing it. You're a business owner. You're like, well, everyone files taxes this way. It's not legal. It's not honest. But everyone does it this way. Everyone hires people this way. Everyone manages this way. Every student does it this way. It's going to seem normal and enticing, but it will lead to for all those who take it. This is a reoccurring theme in the book of Proverbs, by the way. Two paths always before the reader. The path of wisdom and the path of foolishness. The path of life, the path of death. And that is the choice before us every single day, yo. When we choose to act out in anger, we choose death. We choose foolishness. When we choose to pay back evil for evil, we choose death. We choose foolishness. When we choose to pray and be compassionate and be forgiving, we choose life and we choose wisdom. Those paths are before us in every single moment throughout the day. And the writer here is telling us and pleading with us to not be persuaded. But here's a question. Is that always true, though? Is it always true that people who do the wrong thing, it ends in disaster? For honest, like, we don't see that, though. I know lots of business owners who are doing terrible illegal things and making millions of dollars. Business is growing, building new offices, hiring new people. I know lots of folks who are doing dirty in life, and it seems to be working. There's folks who've been married for a long time, cheating and lying every single day. So the question we have to ask ourselves like, man, like I, it says that if we choose. The the way of foolishness, if we choose to to fall to be enticed by sin, that will end in death. But the reality is, often, more often than not, we don't see those consequences, do we? That's what makes sin so enticing in the first place, is people seem to be getting away with it. If 100% of the people who sped on I-26, if they all got tickets, we wouldn't speed. We just wouldn't do it. But most people seem to be speeding, and it seems to be okay. So why not? Most people who cheat on their taxes, most people who are lying to their spouses, most people who compromise and sin seem to be doing okay. So why do I have to go through all of this extra stuff when everyone seems to be working out just fine? Um, Aiken's commentary on the Proverbs gives us a helpful lens on how we can really understand what we're seeing when we seem to see people who are wicked prospering. And he says, Proverbs are promises that are generally true now but they are absolutely true in the life to come. Proverbs are promises that are generally true now, but are absolutely true in the life to come. The the hard truth is there are some people who will do evil in this world and they will prosper until they die. But guess what's going to happen, y'all? Everybody dies. Everybody has to stand before the God and give an account of their life. And at that moment, no one's gonna say, standing before the God of heaven and earth, that it was worth it. No one's gonna say it was worth it. Because a hundred years on this life versus an eternity separated from God, it is not gonna be worth it. So the reality is this path of death, we might see it in this life, we might not, but it will happen for those who reject God and choose the path of foolishness. Death is inevitable death is inevitable. So what's the hope here? What's the hope? I said the title at the beginning of the series, um, at the beginning of the sermon, should be something simply fully persuaded. So what should we be persuaded of? We know clearly what we should not be persuaded for. We should not be persuaded and enticed to sin, verse 10. So then what should we be persuaded of, and how do we reject the temptations of sin? Speaking about the faith of Abraham, Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 21 says this. Yet he, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Hey, take the mic. That Abraham was fully persuaded that God could do exactly what he was going to do. So the reality is, for us, if we are not to be persuaded by sin, what should we be fully persuaded about? Two things, the first of which, that God is who he says he is, and God will do what he says he will do. What helps you from taking that shortcut is knowing that God will come through in his good timing. What helps you from taking the easy route, good things, is trusting that God will do what he said we would do. We've got to be convinced in our hearts that God can be trusted. Or the enticement to sin will seem like a really good option. We've got to be convinced in our hearts that God is who he is and God will do what he said he would do. The second thing that we have got to be persuaded of, Romans 8:38 a familiar verse for some, it says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what you need to be convinced of. We be fully persuaded of, Christian. We will be enticed to sin and we will fight it. but We will fail. We'll take the path of foolishness. We'll take the path of death. And in that moment, the devil's going to kind of get, she's going to go for a double score here. He's going to try to get you to sin, and then he's going to get you to, to feel so much shame that you don't run back to the Father. We need to be fully persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even our own foolishness. Nothing can separate us from God, not even our mistakes that we make over and over and over again. We need to be persuaded and convinced that God will always welcome us back home. There's a story of the prodigal son. And that story isn't the son who squanders what he took and runs back to his father. But the, the hero in that story isn't the son who comes back home. The hero of that story is the father who was waiting for him to come back home. The gospel For those struggling in sin is simply this. The good news for those struggling in sin is simply this. Come back home. Your father is waiting. Come back home. Come back home. (laughs) We said it last week that no one is shocked by our sin but us. God knew that you were going to fail. God knew that you were going to take that shortcut, and he already made provision to bring you back. But we must be convinced of that, lest the devil not only entice us to sin— but entice us to believe something that's not true, which is your sin has somehow disqualified you. Your sin has somehow made you fall out of God's grace and favor. That your sin has somehow exempted you from the privileges of being a son or being a daughter. We must be people who are fully persuaded that God is a father who is waiting for us to come back home, no matter how many times we fail. My sons, daughters, if sinners entice you Don't be persuaded. So what does this look like in a day-to-day practice? For me, when I became a believer, I didn't know anybody else who was saved. So I got saved, and I immediately lost every friend I had. I didn't know anybody who was a Christian. I didn't have any relationship with anybody who was a Christian. And so for me, verses like this were hard because, like, what do I do now? Do I just sit at the house and read my Bible on a Friday night? What do I do? I would say this to you, especially a young person. You've got to be willing to sit at home by yourself reading your Bible, then go out and do something dumb. You've got to settle that in your heart up front, that I will, I will walk the path of righteousness and holiness, even if it means i got to be bored at home. Because I'm not going back to who I was and what I used to do. And for us folks who got a little bit of life on us, we've got to be willing to not do what even other Christians say that it's okay to do. We've got to be willing to say, you know what? Nah, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying nothing about how you live your life, but instead of manipulating my husband, I'm going to pray for my husband. Instead of lying to my wife, I'm going to lead her and wash her in the water of the Word. Instead of taking this shortcut that everyone else is doing, I'm going to trust that God will give me what I need. And if, he doesn't, if I don't get it, that means God don't want me to have it, and I'm okay with that. That means we've got to upfront make some hard decisions that we are going to follow God even if it doesn't work out in the short term. Just like death and destruction will come to those who follow the path of foolishness one way or the other, life and every prayer that we've ever prayed for will be answered. Yes, it may not happen in this life, though. We may have to trust God that in His timing, He's going to give us all good and perfect things. And that may be when we see Him face to face. And are we okay with that? Or is God simply a means to our end? And if God, if you don't do it, I will. If you don't provide this thing, I'll figure it out. Or do we surrender and say, God, here's what I need. Here's what I I yearn for. Here's what I feel like is good for me to have. Here's what your word says that you want to give to me. God provide it. But even if you don't, I'll trust you. I'll wait on you. I'll be patient. Because ultimately, the best gift is not what we get from God, but it's God himself. It's God himself. And that may sound real strange for for some of us who don't know him. That sounded real strange to me when I sat in a Sunday service week after week after week as an unbeliever saying, no, I want want the stuff, not him. But then you taste and see that he really is good. And so when God withholds gifts from his hands, that's when you need to lean deeper into relationship with him. Lean in closer to your relationship with him so that you can be satisfied in him whether you get the thing or not whether he provides the answer or not. That's what it means to be fully persuaded, y'all, to be deep in your soul that God is good and he will provide that which is best. Try your best, dear, dear brother, dear sister. Verse 10 is something you may want to even memorize. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. Don't be persuaded that sin works. Don't be persuaded that sin is effective. Don't be persuaded that sin is good. Don't be persuaded, because honestly, deep down, we know these things to be true, yet we forget. We're often tempted again to make our own way when God has provided a way for us. And how do we fight that temptation? We're persuaded of two things. One, that God is faithful. God will do what he said he would do, and he is who he said he is. And secondly, we're persuaded that even if we fall, Even if we mess up, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, even us. We serve a God that good, y'all. Do you know it to be true? Before I close in prayer, I just want to give a note to those who may be in this place that don't know God, don't have a relationship with God. I said that this was directed to sons, to disciples, to followers of Jesus. So what is it for you that the Lord, that the word of God would say to you today? The word of God would simply say this, come home. Come home. Don't wait till you get it right. Don't wait till till every question is answered. You feel the pulling of the love of God saying right now, I don't care what you've done. I already paid for it. Come home. And that's the word I would give to you today. You know sin isn't good. You know it's not working. You know it's not really that fun. You know it leaves you empty weekend after weekend after weekend. So come home taste and see what everyone in this room already has experienced, that we have seen that the Lord is good and he is better than sin. Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com.